The Disney movie Lion King, many of you have seen, and the opening scene is Mufasa's the king of, he's the king of lions, he's the king of the jungle, and he's just had a son, Simba. And one of his friends, the monkey, takes Simba, and what's he do? He puts him up, and he lifts him up, and all of creation in that jungle stops, pauses, and bows down before him. Because in that moment, King Mufasa wanted everyone to know that his son, the new prince, was born, and that also at some point he would become move from prince to king. And that at that moment of presentation, all of that jungle stopped and bowed down to him to give him his due rights and his privilege as the prince. Imagine with me if God the Father had done that with his son Jesus. That if he had the birth of his son raised him up, all of creation, not just a little piece of a jungle, but all of creation would have bowed down before him and proclaimed him, and God would have said, give him his due. Give him his honor, his rights, and his privileges. But God the Father did exactly the opposite of that. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a cave, laid in a manger, and was hidden. Very few saw him or even knew of his birth, and even more so, even fewer knew of his lineage. The birth, death, resurrection, and life of Jesus is an example for us of what it looks like to surrender ourselves and to have a circle of life, or better yet, a cycle of of surrendership so that we can experience the full life that God has for us. That here Jesus has a great example of surrendering from his incarnation to his moment of Gethsemane to his moment of crucifixion to the moment whenever he was resurrected and God raised him from the dead so that he could in that moment experience his fullness of his divine rights and the privileges of being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords But God had a moment for him to show us what it looked like to be his children and to take step by step in obedience and surrender. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, here in just a moment. We'll be digging into this idea of, of a cycle of surrendership. But for us, there's all kinds of cycles of life. As a matter of fact, the very cycle of life is that there's a pregnancy, there's a birth, there's a toddler... There's a little child, there's this moment called puberty that we all love, there's adolescence, and then at some point along the way we seal a stamp with people and say, hey, you're mature enough to be called an adult. And uh, that may be 18, it may be 21, for some it may be 50, who knows. And then at some point you get to this thing called senior adulthood, and then eventually the cycle of life completes for all of us. There's seasons and cycles of life, it's natural for us. Also, another cycle that's very natural for us is the cycle of sin. We see it in our own lives, but we see it in Scripture through the life of the nation of Israel. We see it completely in Judges, where the author of Judges says to us, all men do what they see right in their own eyes. And because of that, there's this cycle of sin in our humanness. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, why we want it, and the amount that we want it. And so we do what we want with the perspective of it's right in my own eyes. And so because of that, there's a cycle of sin. And the cycle of sin is is that, hey, we start feeling good about ourselves, and in that moment that we kind of raise ourselves up, we trip and fall, and therefore sin. And in that moment of sin, then all, all of that comes sorrow. We begin to repent, and out of that then becomes this moment of 
reestablishing our relationship with God and saying, God, I'm sorry for my sin. And then again, the whole cycle repeats over and over and over again. And that's where we struggle as humans, especially as we're trying to follow Jesus, is that sometimes we get stuck in the cycle of sin and we want to have victory. We want to get past it. And it's just this cycle of life that in many ways it's natural as we're growing closer to God that hopefully that the cycle becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. But it continually reminds us Just like the cycle of life that we're dependent upon others, the cycle of sin continually reminds us that we're dependent upon God and that as we learn who he is and how trustworthy he is, the cycle of sin gets longer and longer and longer. But it also reminds us that we can't save ourselves, that we're always and consistently in need of a Savior. And we will never arrive until the moment of our cycle of life ends. And then, as followers of Christ, we're able to enter into heaven and a new opportunity to experience the fullness of life that God has for us. But here Jesus, in his birth, life, death, and resurrection, shows us a cycle of surrendership. It's just literally of stepping down in a path of moving downward and emptying ourselves like he did so that at some point we can be raised up. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. The cycle of surrender starts there. It says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, or the same mindset that Christ Jesus had. And what did he have? Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. That he, he got to this point, he understood the rights and privileges that he had, but he was willing to surrender them in obedience because he had this relationship and trust with the Father. Verse 7. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave, of a servant, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humbleness, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names. Now this word humble shows up several times in this passage. And humble is a word that means low or servant. Or I've, again, given up privileges and I've chosen to serve other people. I see other people as worthy to serve and, and, and to meet their needs. It's this idea of caring for others even though it's inconvenient to me, even though they should be serving me, I've chosen to submit to theirs. And it's not a forced thing, it's a choice. And we see that all throughout the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that he willingly chose to serve others and to not have others serve him. As a matter of fact, he said several times in his ministry, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And that's that downward path of of humbleness and of choosing to say everyone is available to be served. I am not better than anyone else. I can serve others to meet their needs. We see it in his incarnation that he gave up his rights and privileges. Literally, this passage says he emptied himself. So he was 100% God. He was 100% man as he walked the earth. But in that moment, he surrendered the rights and privileges, so that whenever he walked into a place, people did not recognize him as as God because he had surrendered those rights and privileges. If he had 
claim those and cling to those. Every time he would walk into a village, people would have bowed down and worshipped because he would have been holding on to the rights and privileges. But because he gave those up, he was able to walk in and to serve and to do the things that he was able to do and to heal because people saw him as a teacher and a rabbi as human, not as God, his incarnation. The other thing about this passage is his incarnation, but also this moment of Gethsemane that he humbled himself to the place of the criminal's cross. So again, his rights and privileges were of king of kings and lord of lords, but he humbled himself to the place of the, of the, of the cross. And so you remember his story of right before the cross, there was the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took some of his disciples with him, and as they were there, he said, hey, you stay here and pray for me. I'm going to go, and I need to talk to the Father for a little bit. We've got some inter-discussions, some deep discussions that we need to have. And as he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times he says, Father, not my will, but your will. Father, not my will, but your will. Father, not my will, but your will. Why? Because he understood what was coming at the cross. He understood what was coming with the crucifixion. He had an idea of the fact that he was going to be separated from the Father because of all of our sins, all of our messiness were going to be on him, and he would suffer for the brokenness of fellowship between him and his Father. We, too, have moments of Gethsemane, Those moments where we're struggling, we're saying, Father, I know that you've asked me to do that. God, I know that you've asked me to do this. Jesus, I know that you've asked me to do this. And so we're in that moment of the Garden of Gethsemane. We're struggling with our agenda. We're struggling with our will. We're struggling with releasing the things, the rights and privileges that are ours, or even other people say are ours, and giving those over for the betterment of ourselves, but the betterment of the kingdom so that we can serve other people. The Garden of Gethsemane, the incarnation, and then also you see it in his crucifixion. Literally, the passage says in his crucifixion that he chose, and therefore his crucifixion is sealed by his obedience by dying a criminal's death. Now, this is a blood covenant, and this is one of those weird things that we don't talk about a whole lot. We may not even understand. It's kind of old stuff, but in this moment, it's extremely consequential. It has great meaning for us. And so the blood covenant in those days sealed an agreement between two people, or it sealed an agreement between God and between man. We see it with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and they cut an animal in half from lengthwise, and God and Abraham walked through that sacrifice. They walked through the blood, and they literally did a figure eight to seal the covenant that they had. Now, the interesting thing about this covenant language is that whenever you enter into a covenant with someone, that it's an unbreakable bond. Now, one of the things that I do whenever I do weddings a lot of times is I do a salt covenant because they, again, one of these Old Testament things that used to happen is two people would exchange salt together. It was obviously a valuable commodity in the old days. And so they would say, hey, we're going to sell this to you and you're going to buy it. And this is, you know, this is what's going to happen over this land deal or something like that. And these two guys would have salt pouches. This was their wallet. And they would take salt out of their pouch and they would place it in the other person's pouch. And they'd say, we have now made a covenant together. And that the only way that this covenant can be broken, that this deal can be broken, is if you can find the exact granules of salt that I've taken from my pouch and put in your pouch and vice versa, which we know is an impossibility. How can you find the exact same granules of salt? 
And so there are moments in our walk with Jesus and our walk with God that we may want to bow out of what God's asked of us or what's next for us in our relationship with God. And God says, listen, I know that you may want it, but I want to remind you of the fact that we have made a covenant together. And you may want to back out of the covenant, but my promise to you is it is inconsistent with my character as God, as someone who loves you and cares for you and has the best for you. You are sealed in my hand, and that covenant can never be broken. And so here in that moment, whenever Jesus gave his life for us, it was the necessary blood covenant. It was the establishment of a once-for-all blood covenant for us. And in that moment when we say yes to Jesus, it's like we've walked the figure eight with God the Father and with Jesus. And that Jesus has taken the salt out of his pouch and we've taken the salt out of our pouch. And Jesus, there's those moments where we say, I want out. It's too much. I don't understand it. The Father says to us, Jesus says to us, I will not let you go. That's the power of the covenant. That's the power of the blood of Jesus on the mercy seat that we have been made free and set free, and he will not let us go. His strong right arm will hold on to us even in those moments of the Garden of Gethsemane where we're struggling and we want to get up and we want to run as fast as we can run, he says to us, I will not let you go. And then from that moment of the Garden of Gethsemane to the crucifixion, then also the moment of resurrection, that at that moment after his death and burial and resurrection, he was raised up as we see he was elevated up god raised him up and so now the things that were rightly his his divine rights and his divine privileges he's now able to live those out and god is able to proclaim him and at one point at the end of all time all of creation will bow down and call his name and he will because of the fact that he relinquished his rights and privileges and humbled himself unto the point of the cross for you and for I. So in the cycle of surrendership that Jesus went through, we see an opportunity, a, a symbolism, a way of living out life for us as followers of Jesus. If he's our teacher, if he's our disciple, then we're sitting at his feet and we're understanding what it means to surrender our inner self as well. And so that whole process is one of incarnation of literally having an empathetic heart, of saying, I will am willing to step into the shoes, or the empathetic definition is to get into the skin of someone else and walk in their shoes for a little bit so I can see and feel and think like they do. That that's our call as followers of Jesus, is to be empathetic toward other people. One of you, when there's a group here, even right now, that are studying and, and thinking about what does it look like for us to be of, of different ethnicity and how do, how do they have differences and different things that are going on and how can I be empathetic toward their situation so I can understand how to walk with them and, and see things how they view things so that I can be Jesus to people that are a little different than me. That's our call is stepping into someone else's shoes and walking with them in those incarnational moments. That is literally biblical friendship saying, I will walk with you. The other thing besides incarnation is also for us our Gethsemane moments. 
Those moments where we know that we know that we know that God's calling us to something and we're struggling with it. We know that we have to give up maybe some of our image, that we have to give up some of the things that that we cling to that gives us rights and gives us identity and gives us purpose, and that Christ is saying, listen, I want you to, to give that up. And so we're in the garden, in our own personal garden, we're struggling with it. We're saying, God, it's it's it's... I don't know that I want it to be your will. I, it's, I, I like what I like when I want it, how I want it. And, and, and it's really good living right now. And in the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane, that struggle that we go through to kind of fight through it. And even in Hebrews chapter 10, the uh, author of Hebrews says, have we struggled to the point of, of, of giving up the things that we need to give up, even to the point of death, of the shedding of blood? Most of the time, this is this powerful image of us in the garden just saying at that moment of I give up the things that maybe sometimes that I think give me worth and value but are not what God wants for me. I'm going to surrender those things and give them to you, an act of obedience. But we have those, those struggles with those things. Our incarnation and our moments of Gethsemane also lead us to our moments of crucifixion. Look at Matthew Chapter 16, verse 24, a passage that if you've been in church for a little bit, you know it. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, literally, whoever wants to sit at my feet and to learn how to live like I'm talking about, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. One of the things about being a disciple in those days is that you would have a rabbi, and the rabbi, you would literally sit at their feet. Every time that they were teaching, every time that they would go from synagogue to synagogue, a disciple of that rabbi would sit at their feet and they would listen to the stories. And then they would go home and at the hotel that they would share, at the house that they would share, and they would go and they would sit in a mirror and they would replicate those stories. They would even mimic the way that their teacher taught them. They would mimic the voice. They would mimic mimic everything about them so that whenever someone saw them in a few weeks or in a few months and they're telling the story, someone would go, oh, yeah. You are a student, you are a disciple of Rabbi John because I can see and I've heard him share those stories and I see the resemblance of you as a student of being of Rabbi John. And here Jesus is saying for us is that if you are going to be my student and I'm going to be my you're going to be I'm going to be your rabbi and you're going to sit at my feet, you're going to mimic the way that I do life. You're going to have moments of incarnation. You're going to have moments of Gethsemane. You're going to have moments of crucifixion. And I want you to understand, I want it to be clear, to be a disciple of me means to give up your rights and your privileges and your agenda so that you can say with me, not my will, but the Father's will. Take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That that longing for a life that is full, that has meaning and purpose, is found in not claiming our rights and privileges. It's actually in giving them up and saying, I have not come to be served, but to serve. My agenda is the Father's will, not my will. And it's those moments in the garden of struggling and of obedience and knowing, man, God, I wish that you would show me a mile ahead. And God says, you have enough for this moment, just this step. Surrender the next step to me. It's not my Father's will. It's not my will, but my Father's will. 
And then finally, this moment of resurrection, that moment of victory in your life that when you give it over and there's this joy, there's this peace, there's this overwhelming sense of that you know that you're in the Father's will, those are resurrection moments. Of, in uh, James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, surrender, give up your rights, give up your privileges, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, that doesn't mean that the people, that your neighbors, that your friends, your, anybody else will lift you up. They actually maybe mock you. But the one voice that matters will raise you up. The one voice that matters will say, well done, my faithful servant. Well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. You have been obedient. Everyone else is going this way, and you're going that way. You are about my father's business, and he is applauding. Here's the deal. We have misconstrued the understanding that we think that this is our audience. But we live life for the audience of one. And so that's the struggle in Gethsemane as we're saying, Father, but everybody else, what will they say? What will they think? I will be considered weird. I will be all the things that we think. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, it's not about your will. It's about his. And whose audience are you living for? Whose applause are you living for? Who do you want to say, well done? Humble yourselves. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up. May we experience that downward path of the cycle of the surrendership and understanding of what it means to be incarnational and to be empathetic and to to struggle with the things that we need to struggle with so that we can experience carrying our cross and hearing the applause of the one that matters. Well done. Well done. This is why I believe this is the road less traveled. It's not an easy road. Sometimes it's the road if you're literally going against traffic. But it's the road of peace. It's the road of joy. It's the road of significance. It's the, it's the road of great meaning. And it's the road of the inner life where God is chiseling away and doing the work that God does only in those moments where we can surrender and be oh. But here's the deal. There's no life hack. This is no shortcut. This is day after day after day after day of obedience. So that the cycle of sin becomes shorter. So that the things of sin that have attracted to, that we've been attracted to, that our appetites and our the way that they gleam go away. It's a day after day after day habit of saying yes to the things of God and no to the things of self. Walking hand in hand with the Father. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would live life not for the applause of anyone else but from you. And we find our worth, our value, our identity from you. So that in those, gar- those Garden of Gethsemane moments when we're struggling with whatever it is that we're holding on to and clinging to, may we hear you say that 
for us time and time again that I love you, my child, and your worth and your value and your meaning come from me and me alone. Those other people, those other things are cheap, cheap trinkets and are temporary. They will maybe for a moment bring you a sense of worth and validation. But the week later, the shine rubs off. The applause of the crowd goes away. The emptiness comes back. Because all those things that we've been pursuing outside of your will are fleeting and like a vapor. And the moment that we think we've captured it, it's gone away. So, Father, I pray that as we struggle with the things that we're holding on to, may we just be reminded that you have a treasure trove of wealth before us that you want to give to us. But it takes these Garden of Gethsemane moments, it takes these crucifixion moments to surrender our will to yours. Father, may we trust you, obey you, and pursue your applause and your words of encouragement and not our neighbors. It's in your son's name that we pray.